Guys, if you have a Bible um, or something, an electronic version of that, why don't you grab it? We have some Bibles in the, the center aisle here as well. They're always there. They're for you to grab one. We always put the, the text on the screen. Yeah, absolutely, grab one. But uh, there's something about having it in front of you because uh, as we read through Scripture, God's context is utterly essential. And we're not always going to, to elaborate on all of the context. So having um, a Bible open in your lap is very helpful because you can kind of you can look at the context as we, as we study together. Um, but anyways, we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week. If you're, if you're new or new-ish, welcome. Super glad you're here. We started a series, a study through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which we know as the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, one of several letters or epistles that we find in the New Testament. And we've entitled this particular series through 1 Corinthians, Unlikely Church, because of all of the letters written to various churches in the first century, followers of Jesus, communities centered around Jesus, who was God in the flesh, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, thus conquering death and offering us new life as we trust him and follow him with all of our lives. A community sprung up in the city of Corinth in the first century around this truth, this fact, this event around Jesus. And uh, this particular church had issues, to put it very, very lightly. They had problems on the inside and pressures from without. And for, for all of those reasons that we listed a couple of weeks ago, it's arguably one of the most unlikely churches to have ever survived the first century. Now, why that's helpful for us is because as we consider who the Corinthians were and the kind of pressures and, and, and issues that they're dealing with as a church community, there's a shockingly high number of parallels that we can draw between them and us. Amen or oh my. So, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to take a substantial chunk this morning. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read all the way up through verse 31. I've entitled this particular message, The Folly of the Cross. Here we go. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written... He quotes Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater or the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Next slide. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, or non-Jews, Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In other words, we preach Christ crucified, 
which is the event through which God supremely demonstrated his power and wisdom. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth or any kind of influence. Next slide. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is our justification, the renewed status that we've received through faith in Jesus, sanctification, that's the journey of holiness, as we walk it out to the rest of our lives, and redemption, our ultimate destination as adopted children in the family of God, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I believe that's Paul quoting Jeremiah 9. Quite a mouthful, is it not? This is classic Paul, Apostle Paul, the one who's writing this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit um, to Christians. For a century, Christians living in Corinth, but also to us today. What do we make of this? The word of the cross, let's start there, is folly or foolishness or silliness to those who are perishing, but the very power of God to those who are being saved. What is the word or the message of the cross or what we commonly refer to as the gospel. What, what is this, this message? Verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified, the person and event by which God in his infinitely supreme wisdom chose to supremely demonstrate his power and wisdom in a way that makes all other so-called power and wisdom seem like folly. Let me ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever had a friend or someone tell you something that when they told you seemed so spectacular, like so good to be true, that you just sort of like laughed them off and thought, seriously, who, who would ever believe that? You know what I'm saying? I remember... Um, I was probably around 14, 15, early 90s. My buddy John Markley, he, had, he was so excited. Early high school, he comes to me. Simon, you've got to get an email account. <laughs> I was like, what is that? <laughs> Proving how old I am. And so he proceeded to explain to me, well, it's like this thing where we can write letters to each other, but instead of on paper and post, we can send them through the internet. And I was like, that is the lamest thing I've ever heard of. Like, who's ever going to do that? Like, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's just, that's, that's silly. That, that is foolishness. 
And then, of course, later on, I find out, well, who's, who's, who's the lame one, really? <laughs> Ended up taking off. It became a thing. This is like what Paul is talking about. This is, this is the message, the word of the cross. It is so spectacular. It is so unlikely. It is so incredible that when we hear it, it's like, for real? For real. To those who are perishing, to those who refuse to believe, to those who are just a little too smart to accept something so profoundly simple, powerful, deep, and for anyone. For those people, it's folly. For those who have chosen to believe, who've made that decision to trust in Jesus, who he has and what he's done for us on the cross. It's, it's the message of God's supreme power and wisdom at work in people's lives. What do you think about that? Super cool. This is how Paul's explaining the seeming ridiculous nature of the gospel. It's important to remember that the letter that we're reading an excerpt from is written to Christians. Okay, these, these are people who, have, who do believe in Jesus. They've decided to, to build a whole community around the reality of the crucified Christ who's conquered death, come back to life, and, and started something on planet Earth. So they believe. But we also know that the Corinthians, they've, they've got a real taste, a real liking for spiritual demonstrations of power, and they especially are into their wisdom. Uh, the, these are Christians, apparently, who, who read books. In fact, in the introduction of the letter, uh, Paul addresses the fact that there's, there's divisions in the church, there's quarreling, there's factions that are forming because some of the Corinthian believers are, have decided, now they're kind of over Paul, who apparently by his own admission wasn't a great, eloquent speaker, but there was another leader in the church who Paul is no way like against Apollos, who apparently is extremely eloquent, very well-spoken, a master orator, if you will. The Corinthians like that. They're into Apollos. They're into their wisdom. So much so that it would seem they've, they've lost the plot. Christ crucified. The essence of what they believe, the gospel, has somehow become silly to them. It's become folly. Let's talk about that. Why? What is it about that and the gospel that would lead anyone, any of us, to, to lose the plot and begin thinking, well, that's just kind of silly. How does, how does, a, how does a Jewish rabbi dying on a Roman cross nearly 2,000 years ago mean anything to my life? in this city we live in today. Let's talk about that. I want to say a few things about this message, this word of the cross. Number one, it's a message of freedom. The word of the cross is freeing. We've been set free 
because of Jesus, because of his death, because of his victory over death, because of new life, we've been set free. We've been set free from uh, the world's system. We've been set free from, as the, uh, the apostle John puts it in one of his letters, the present evil age. We've been set free from our own uh, carnal tendencies, our own uh, fleshly desires, as Paul writes elsewhere. We've been set free from fear. We've been set free from spiritual oppression. We've been ultimately set free from death itself. Paul writes about death and he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Not even death has a hold on us. And we've been set free. I, lo- I love the way Paul puts it in his letter to uh, the Christians in Rome. Romans 7, 6. We've been set free from the letter of the law so that we can now serve in the new way of the spirit. In other words, we've been set free from religion. We've been set free from religion. Which is good news and bad news. Now we know that the gospel is good news. Like literally translated, it is the good news. But there's good news and bad news. The good news is that because we've been set free, we are no longer bound to try and earn something or get something or act a certain way so that God is obligated to do something for us. We've been set free from trying to earn God's love, which, by the way, has radical implications for our relationships with one another. You know that. When you have been overwhelmed, caught up in the love that the Father has for the Son, when you experience the very love of God, who, which he pours into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us, it's like, it's like winning the lottery. Only you didn't buy the ticket, you like find it laying on the ground. Or someone gives it to you. It's utterly free. It's a gift. And all of a sudden, because of something someone else did a long time ago, you are utterly, ridiculously, insanely, silly rich. You've been set free. Relationally speaking, we no longer have to like create barriers and boundaries and defenses. We don't have to be guarded for fear of giving something or too much and not getting enough back. We become defensive, we become insecure. We, we start to, in our mind, think of, well, you know, I don't, I don't wanna give too much because what if I don't get enough in return? Then I'm gonna end up feeling like used and, and neglected. And the problem is that you've won the lottery, okay? You've got a lot, a lot, a lot an infinite amount of love to go around. If in fact you've tapped into the love of the Father, that's, that's freedom, that is freedom. Now, it's tricky though. It's scarily scary how, how often and easy it is to forget that reality. We lapse back into this religious mindset this is the case 
for the Corinthians. This is especially the case if you read another one of Paul's letters. He writes a letter to the church in the region of Galatia. It's actually a whole region of churches that we know as the Galatians. They began with this revelation of grace that God has given them this free gift that they've been loved. They've been adopted into the family. They, they are filthy rich in Jesus Christ. And then as they're going along, they get a bit of wisdom, they get a bit of power, and they forget. And they lapse into this mindset of, well, but now I've got to, you know, I've got to do something to continue earning God's love. And that also has radical implications in terms of how we relate with others. Let me, let me tell you this. This will be really helpful. Religion, we're talking about religion versus the gospel. Religion says you must blank so that God might fill in the blank. You must act this way so that God might act this way towards you. You must do this in hopes that God will do that. That's religion. You do this, you help yourself, and perhaps God will help you out a little bit as well. You've heard the old adage, right? God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever had someone say, well, you know what the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. I, you know, I've looked for it, I've Googled it, it's not in the Bible. It's just really, really not. In fact, the opposite. The opposite. Does God help people? Absolutely. Does it mean I, I do nothing? I just I don't get out of bed? No, that's, that's ridiculous. But religion, the law, the letter of the law says, you do this so that God might do that. The gospel says, God has blank, therefore I can blank. God has blank, therefore I am now free to do that. God has loved me with an incomprehensible love in Jesus Christ, therefore I am now set free to reciprocate, to love back, to share all of the love that God pours into my heart. God entered into the world, he became flesh, the Son of God entered into creation and died for my sins, fulfilling all of the righteous requirements of the law so that everything I do is simply a beautiful heart-level response, which, by the way, is what we call worship. Worship. Everything I do is a response to who God is and what he's done for me. Namely, in the son Jesus on the cross. That's freedom. Religion says you go to God to get. The gospel says God came to us to give. Is that silly? It depends from what angle you're looking at it. Okay, that's number one. Number two. Here's the bad news. The word of the cross, it's offensive. It's offensive. In essence, Paul is saying, if you're weak, slightly dense, and really have very little to offer God, good news. God specializes in using the foolish and weak things of the world to do awesome 
and spectacular things for the cause of his kingdom. Bad news is, if you think you're all that, and you got to head out to here, and you're strong, and you got it all figured out, well, if you want to have anything to do with God, his love, and his kingdom, you're going to have a difficult time. It's, it's going to hurt. Jesus said in Matthew 21 that um, either, either we fall on the rock or the rock falls on us. One way or the other, there's going to be a breaking of the ego so that we can't boast. Um, a number of years ago, the, uh, the Times, uh, a British publication, sent out, some of you will have undoubtedly heard this story, at the time, sent out an inquiry to several famous authors asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? One rather well-known Christian philosopher and theologian wrote back simply saying, dear sir, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. I am. I am. Doesn't your, your ego just love that? Hmm. What's offensive? What our egos loathe is the fact that God seems to insist that we are not the solution to all of the world's worst problems. We're not the solution because, in fact, we are the problem. And... Not only are we the problem, um, but we are utterly incapable of rescuing ourselves. Guys, I don't care who you are or where you come from. That, that just hurts. Our egos resist that to the core. I don't know why some people are just a bit more humble than others. Maybe it has to do with the way we were raised. Maybe it's just... Your, your personality or your demeanor. Maybe you've been conditioned. Maybe you've been hurt one too many times. But God is so gracious, so wise, and so loving that he refuses to let us go on believing that we're just as big and strong as our creator. Guys, I've only been around 40 two years, I've only been an adult for 20 or so, but I'm convinced, I am, I'm convinced, the more I read, the more I understand history, the more I get to know myself, I am my own worst nightmare, <laughs> and I cannot fix myself. This is why I decided to put my life in the hands of Jesus. I'll tell you how I came to that conclusion. I simply tried to figure it out on my own for many, many years. And it didn't work. Call me pragmatic. Call me simple. But I tried to fix my own life. I tried to construct the perfect world for me to exist in. And it just really wasn't working out. And then someone told me, die to yourself. Trust your creator. He's made a way. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That is, that's silly. 
That is folly. Turns out, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. I love what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here's a, here's a true and trustworthy saying. In other words, here's an ancient Christian creed. Here it is. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Number three. The word of the cross is... Freeing, the word of the cross is offensive. The word of the cross is, number three, laughable. It's laughable. You know, one of the first times the gospel is proclaimed in scriptures is all the way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12, we read uh, the story of a man called Abraham, who uh, we're, not, we're given hardly any of his background story. We just know that he's from a place called Haran, and he had a dad who was like over 200 years old. Dad's about to die, and God, for some reason, picks this random guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. Through your family, through your offspring, I'm going to use you to rescue a broken and dying world. That's his promise to Abraham in Genesis Chapter 12, five chapters later, nearly 25 years on, God comes to Abraham again and affirms this promise. Now for the third time, only this time in Genesis 17, he's even more specific. He says, I'm going to use you through your family. I'm gonna do something that's going to transform the world. I'm gonna bless the world through your family, but I'm gonna do it through you and your wife. So he had actually had a kid with, uh, with his, his wife's maidservant. Didn't go well at all. <laughs> Nearly 25 years had gone by. And God goes to Abraham, who's now 99 years old. He's just, he was 75 when God made the promise initially. 25 years later, Abraham and his wife Sarah are now both 99, almost 100. And God makes, he reaffirms this promise to a 99-year-old man and his wife. And you know what Abraham does? It says that he fell on his face laughing. I love that. And apparently his wife also laughed. Only she, she seemed hesitant to admit it, um, which wasn't good. God didn't seem to have a problem with Abraham laughing. This, this says something significant about the nature of, of the gospel. It's a message of joy. Guys, we have the tendency to get a little too, uh, to groan, little, little too grown up in our theology. Oh, we read some big books and we learn some Greek words and oh, we, you know, we get so smart and something happens. This is why kids are such a blessing. I have the most profound theological discussions with my four-year-old and my six-year-old and my eight-year-old. It's it's so humbling, but they get it. And there's something so childlike and innocent and and joy-filled about how they think about Jesus and this relationship that they apparently are experiencing with God. 
Guys, the gospel is a message of joy. This is why C.S. Lewis says that the serious business, he said, in The Weight of Glory, collection of essays that C.S. Lewis wrote many, many years ago, he said the serious business of heaven is joy. It's joy. I love what uh, Karl Barth said, if you're into him. The gospel is a proclamation of joy. It's not a mixed message of joy and terror, salvation and damnation, help and destruction. The gospel is a proclamation of joy. It's so good, it's laugh out loud. Fourthly, the word of the cross, it's freeing, it's offensive, it's laughable. Fourthly, it's loving. Why would God step down off of his eternal heavenly throne to get down in the muck of human life and our mess? Why would he do that? We know that God was not lacking anything. We know that he wasn't lonely. We know that he wasn't trying to get something from us because that would be selfish and manipulative. Why would he do it? Why would would he give up the life of his own son, God the Son, for us? I mean, some of you are decent people. I could imagine it, I guess. <laughs> but let's be real, the human race on a whole, I don't, I don't mean to sound cynical, but, but we've got a few problems. Got a, got a few kinks still need working out. Yeah, we, we have a tendency to, to drop bombs and do awful things. Smart as we are, and as, as good as, as we'd like to become, why would he do that? The answer is simple, it's love, it's love, it's love. His motivation is love. I, uh, this is why I love the, pro- the, the story of the prodigal son and father. This is one of Jesus' most epic parables that he tells. It's the story of a young man who, um, he went to his father and asked him for his inheritance early. I'm not an expert when it comes to like ancient Near Eastern culture, but I'm pretty sure that was as offensive then as it would be now. Like, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but come on. Like, hook me up. Can I have my inheritance a bit early? And, uh, and so the father, shockingly, says, yes. Yes, fine. And he gives him his inheritance. And the son goes off and, and he squanders it. He just, he just lives the selfish, self-absorbed, carnal sort of life. And eventually he ends up living in a pigsty, eating pig slop. A few weeks ago, the kids um, downstairs, Kid City, they made their crafts. It was the prodigal son story. Some of you are nodding. And they came running upstairs, all three of my kids. Papa, Papa. And they, they were showing me what they made in kids' church. And it was a paper plate that looked like they had just like dumped on some paint, some like strings and it was just like awesome like 
what are you guys doing? Now, apparently, they were making pig slop. I was like, oh, awesome. Brilliant. So the son ends up sleeping in a pig's sty, eating pig slop. And finally, the, the scriptures say that he comes to his senses. And he says, look, I, I had it better off at home. Maybe if I go home, I can convince my father to at least take me back in as like a, a slave, a hired servant. Maybe somehow I can, I can pay off the damage that I've done. And if you've, you've heard the story, you know what happens. Before he even gets home, his father, who's been waiting, who's been watching the horizon, sees his son approaching home. And it says the father takes off running, just hug tackles his son, who's presumably still covered in filth. And it says the father kisses his son. The father says, go get the best robe, put it on my son. Of course, the best robe would have been the father's robe. He covers his son puts the ring, the, the, the family emblem back on his finger before the son can even begin his speech, his big apology, taking me back in speech to his father. He says, no, 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 none of that. My son, who was once dead, is now alive and he has come home. Let's celebrate. It's love. It's not logical. It's ridiculous. It's love. I... Uh, this was back when I was living in London. I was doing work with uh, students on a couple of college campuses there. Um, we had a little outreach going at Queen Mary University over in East London. And uh, I don't know how it even happened, but there was um, a group of Muslims, for whatever reason, decided to ask me if I'd like to do a live debate with one of them. And the question was something to do, like what is the true nature of God? Um, I'd never, ever, ever done anything like that. Was scared to death. Um, I'm not like a, a, an expert on, on Islam or, or, you know, I know the basics. But I thought, how am I going to pass up the opportunity to stand in front of a whole lecture hall full of people, uh, likely mostly Muslims, and tell them what I believe about the true nature of God. And so I decided the best thing I could do would be to tell the story of the prodigal son. Because one thing in my experience, um, many of my Muslim friends who I adore don't truly understand, at least not in the way, in the way I have, is the love of the father. The love of the father. It's, it's unfathomable. And it changes everything. So the word of the cross is freeing, it's offensive, it's laughable, it's full of joy, it's loving, and finally, it's a message that is for you, and you. It's deeply personal, certainly not private, per se, but it's to the individual it's, it's a love that demands a response. It's a gift that requires reception. Unlike any other religious philosophy or idea I've ever come across in my life, the word of the cross is not simply an idea to be pondered. 
It's an invitation to follow and to know and to be loved by and utterly surrender your entire life to Jesus. At the end of uh, John's gospel, he's having a conversation with Peter, another one of the early church leaders. And Peter seems really to be struggling with all that God is, all that Jesus is asking him to do. He says, I want you to follow me and it's gonna cost you everything. And, And the gospel of John says, Peter, he looks to the guy standing nearby, which happens to be John, and he says, what about this guy? And Jesus says, what about this guy? What about him? Yes, I I also died for him, but you, you follow me. And he directs it right back to the individual. Guys, this is key. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond now. Guys, we're, we're actually gonna take communion in just a moment. And I'm going to ask us to all to stand. We're going to have a moment of reflection. And it's going to be an opportunity for you as an individual to respond. Jesus died for you. God loves you. The message of the cross is not merely a philosophy to perhaps add to some other things going on in your life. It's a call to utter surrender. It's deeply personal and it demands a response. I realize that that's like like crazy pressure. I get it. I don't know what to tell you. This is is where we land. This is where we go. If this morning you feel like, gosh, I don't know. That was kind of intense. My ego feels a bit bruised. I feel slightly hopeful. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. But I definitely feel like God is doing something in my heart. I want to ask you to respond to that in the most personal way possible. I want you to say yes to Jesus. If you're not ready, if you're not ready, it's okay. It's it's not okay, but it's okay. (laughs) This is between you and God. If you need to come back next week, if you need to talk to someone a little bit more, if you have some questions that you need to process through, gosh, you're in a good place. You're in a great place for that. Ask your questions. Talk to someone. Figure it out. But don't put it off. Jesus wants to, to rescue you today. If perhaps you're like the Corinthians and you've, you've, you've lost the plot a little bit, You've forgotten what it, what, what it means, uh, the joy of salvation. And your life is just full of heaviness and it's just all cerebral and everything you know about God just seems to kind of be stuck in your brain. And God wants to, to reconnect with your heart. Uh, perhaps this morning you need, to, you need to come back to the Lord and to make a, a, renew your commitment, make a decision 
to surrender your life to him once again. Can we stand together?